This is the word of the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, I just wanted to share with you in light of the information about the Congregational Church of Eastford, Rachel just showed this to me as I came down after the prayer time, uh, that they, they have actually, Pastor Mike has actually responded uh, through an interview with the, the community. So I just wanted to read this report from him to be an encouragement. Because in the middle of their suffering, how did they respond? Pastor Mike responded by praising God. And here's what he said. Uh, Pastor Mike Moran of the Congregational Church of Eastford stood huddled under an umbrella with members of his church surveying the ruins of the overnight fire which destroyed their church building. There were tears, stories of the history of the church, which dates back to 1829 in memories of life at the Congregational Church of Eastford. Here's what Pastor Mike had to say. The church is not the building. The church is the body of believers and it's And it's a really precious bunch here, said Pastor Mike Moran. We will worship this morning. We are blessed in our town to have a really good relationship with the local schools. So as people wake up, we will reach out and we'll reach out and find a place to worship. We have to get God's people together and worship and pray. He's worthy of our worship. He is good. We don't know what he's doing with this. But we know it's good because that's what he does. Moran said after being notified of the fire early this morning that he was contacted by a number of local pastors. I heard from a lot of area pastors, including various names, and they all said, whatever you need, we're here for you. We are blessed in northeastern Connecticut with good godly pastors that are generous, and I am so grateful for those brothers because we love each other and we're here to work together for the sake of the gospel. We're not leaving. I can't imagine not rebuilding this place. So we wait in anticipation with those brothers and sisters. May God be glorified as they face that struggle. Thank you. There are times where as I'm thinking about passages and preaching on them, that Sunday morning comes around and I often go, how am I going to start this one? <laughs> how do I think through how to introduce this passage and what it is saying to our body of believers? I had no idea that God would allow something like a fire to happen at the Congregational Church of Eastford. And we think of the trials of life, ways that we feel oppression from those that do not believe in the gospel. We can't even begin to maybe think of things. We think of things often overseas and in different capacities, all real, true things that we should not minimize. But I would have never imagined that I would have woken up on this day to hear this kind of news about a local church that I've stepped foot in many times. It is absolutely mind-boggling to think through their experiences and to think of our church's own history. We're here in this building that was built in 1882. This is the fourth building in, this exist in the church's history. Two other buildings that were here were burnt down by arsonists in the early 1800s. And fire wrecks its hav- or, yeah, just wrecks havoc on church communities. It is absolutely crazy to think of the ways that these brothers and sisters are just feeling overwhelmed by grief and loss this morning. But in light of that, we're not here to just talk about ways of persecution uh, in the sense of the trials of life. We're to actually talk about the persecution that we will face from those that oppose the gospel. Through John's gospel, in the last few weeks and months, we have been hearing the works and words of Jesus. Last week, Caleb, as he was in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17, talked about the comfort and joy that we can have in Christ. And that's it, by belonging to him and knowing that our life comes from him. In chapter 14, Uh, John uh, records for us that Jesus was giving the disciples great encouragement because there was going to be a promise that was going to come to life for them. This was the promise that he was going to prepare a place for them where they would be with him and with God, that he would not abandon them, that he would leave them with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit 
would come and teach and guide them. He told us that we would have peace in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And on the way to Jerusalem after they had left the Passover feast, he told the disciples to remain in him so they would produce fruit. John chapters 13 through 15 are full of really positive news. But in John 15 18, Jesus delivers some hard truth for the disciples. And it's the reality that they will face persecution. So, brothers and sisters, I don't know what your mind has been uh, around the, the thoughts of persecution, but I want you to hear from Jesus this morning and hear this, that Christians, we must be ready to suffer for the sake of Christ and to testify to his work. We must be ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Lord Jesus, and to testify of his work. But friends, in light of that, though persecution is coming, we have another great encouragement. The Holy Spirit will be with us. The Holy Spirit will be with us. I I looked up some research And I found this. Last year, 5,621 Christians were murdered for the sake of, in the name of the gospel. Of that, 2,110 churches were attacked because of the proclamation of the gospel. And another 4,542 Christians were detained because of reasons related to their faith. There's scary news this morning, but it's real news, and that's the reality that persecution is coming. Persecution is coming. We see in John 15, verses 18 through uh, chapter 16, verse 4, the reality of this news, how we're to respond in light of that, and the the promise that the Holy Spirit will be with us. So first, let's look at verses, uh, chapter 15, verses 18 through 25. We're going to learn what Jesus has to say in this horrible news that persecution is coming for us. It all starts in verse 18. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, I have chosen you out of it. The world hates you. So Christian, as we come to John 15 and 16 this morning, we must recognize that there has to be an expectation for us that the world is going to be opposed to the people and person of God. Is this your expectation this morning? Often we think of how we relate to the world that's around us, and we think, well, as long as we leave people to their thing, they won't bother us, right? Isn't that a mentality that we have in the world? Let people be what they do, and we'll just go on and do our thing. Me, myself, and I, whatever you do is what you do, right? Or the, co- the common New England saying of, we're all set. I've got my thing, you've got your thing, we're just going to leave it be. Jesus tells us, though, that we can't stay neutral forever. The reality is, is that the world will hate us. Why does the world hate Christians? The world hates Christians because it hates Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, that sounds pretty harsh. I'm just sharing the words of Jesus with you this morning. This is what Jesus has said in John's gospel. The world hates you, but understand that it hated me before it hated you. He talks to these disciples in verse 19 and says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Now, the reality is is that the world likes people who celebrate what it appreciates, right? So if we think of the world and we think of how we relate to people that are around us, we probably recognize that everything is about celebrating acceptance and tolerance today. Isn't that true? As long as you accept what I accept and as long as you tolerate what I tolerate, then we can relate to each other and be good. But notice Jesus tells us that he has chosen us out of the world And for what purpose? So that we could be an example to the world that's around us. However, I chose you out of the world. The world hates you. So we must have an expectation that the world is going to be opposed to the things and people of God. We must not be ignorant. Persecution is coming. We can gather in a place like this this morning and have great comfort. You're sitting in comfortable chairs. You've got lighting. There's heat. There are things that you can appreciate about today that... The church, just quite frankly, in other places of the world, 
cannot enjoy. Like Christians that are in North Korea today cannot gather in facilities like we have. They are not allowed to do that. They have to hide to be able to gather. Christians in China face similar persecution. They cannot be publicly gathered in ways where they can come around and drive up in their car with their family, drop somebody at the door, and have nursery services available to them. That doesn't exist. They're underground. They're hidden away from the world. Because if they were publicly gathering for the name and purposes of Christ, they would face opposition. The world is persecuting those who follow Jesus. So in light of that, we must not be ignorant of the reality that persecution is coming, but we also can't be like Chicken Little either. You guys know Chicken Little? It's one of my favorite cartoon movies. I, I relate to good old Chicken Little. I always thought that he had a great hairdo, loved his glasses. But what is Chicken Little known for? Right? He heard some news. What was the news? Anybody know? The sky is falling, right? Somebody told him that the sky was falling, everything was over, and he just could not handle that reality, right? So he let everybody else around him know, the sky is falling, it's all over, we've got to do something, right? Well, I'm not saying that we need to be ignorant of the persecution that's around us, or even maybe negligent of our posture towards those that are facing persecution unlike us, but we must not adapt a worldview where we just say, everything is going to hell in a handbasket, therefore forget how we respond, okay? What Chicken Little does in his response saying the sky is falling is he doesn't give any thought or plan to his kind of response. He just runs around like a chicken without a head, running around going crazy, okay? Now, Christians in light of the persecution that we may face in this place, in this context, guys, do you feel the reality of the oppression of the world that's around us? Do you understand that because of your faith, people oppose you? Is that a reality? Yeah? Does that mean that everything's over? No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that everything's over. It doesn't mean that your life has to end. It doesn't mean that God is not with you or that he doesn't care. He knows you. He sees you. He hears you. He knows exactly what you're going through. And he has placed you in that context in order for you to be an example for him. Why are you facing that persecution? Why are you facing opposition? Why are you facing suffering? Because you represent Jesus when nobody else does. Have we come to that reality yet? Have we come to the reality that we may be facing hard things, not because they're personal attacks on us, but because God may be using us to testify to his goodness, to the gospel, even when nobody wants to listen? Because that's what John 16, 1 tells us. Why do we face persecution? Because the world hates us, but because God wants to use us to tell others about his work. So though we may not face the persecution of being able to publicly gather, we do probably recognize some persecution and opposition that faces us in things like politics, right? Politics do what? They want to divide people, right? And they also, especially it seems like now, want to highlight all of the ways that Christians could be foolish. I was reminded as we were going through course seminar this morning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I love these verses. If you've got your Bible, flip over to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Verse 26 says, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many from noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may be able to boast in his presence. God has chosen to use foolish ways and thoughts and ideas in the world to actually put to shame what is considered wise. 
And what does that represent? That represents us, right? We are not brilliant in our own imaginations. Maybe, I, I think some of you are very brilliant. <laughs> Let me say that. Some of you have very sharp minds, right? But many of us can't say that we're from noble birth, or that we have right standing within the world. But God has used us, ordinary people, to proclaim extraordinary truths about his work and his person. We may be facing persecution in areas like school. Maybe you are attending school now. Like I can think of just some of our kids here, whether you're homeschooled or you're public schooled or you're Christian schooled, you may be facing persecution within your school because of your faith, because of who you represent. Maybe you face persecution in the workplace. Now, I think all of us may remember that whole season called COVID, right? Some people may say that that's not over, right? Either I'm not going to say that it's, it's like gone forever and that it's never coming back, right? But remember that whole time where the world was shut down? Yeah, everybody cringe, right, together. Oh, that was so hard, so miserable. We were isolated alone. Like the video calls that were happening left and right, right? Those got tiring quickly, right? We went through a whole season. Remember how there were even some companies that were pressuring people and saying, if you don't get this vaccine, you can't work here? Persecution. If you don't get along with our agenda and our ways, then we just get rid of you. That's what persecution looks like in the world right now. Maybe in your workplace. Maybe you face persecution in your family. Right? Maybe you're the only Christian in your family. And you're, maybe you're like me, when I became a new believer and my cousins would come around and be like, I remember you as a kid. Right? I remember all the horrible things that you did and all the horrible things that you had said and the horrible ways that you had responded. How could I ever believe in the God that you believe in? And yet you're tempted and you're like, I'm just going to be quiet and just avoid those conversations. God has placed you there. He's placed you to be a testimony of light in the darkness. Maybe you face persecution in your neighborhood. People see, you know, they put the signs out in their yard. We stand for, basically, it seems like everything under the sun, right? We've got this sign that's supposed to be meaningful, but it's actually meaningless because it doesn't really actually say anything, right? We've got this. It's, it means that we love everything and we're about everything and everyone. But we see that you don't have that sign out in your yard. You're a horrible person. <laughs> if you don't have the yard sign, how do we know what you stand for, <laughs> right? It seems like we can laugh about it, but these are real thoughts that people are having as they drive around, right? as they see people within their context. Guys, here's the reality. The world hates those who follow Jesus because they hate Jesus. How do we see this? Verse 20. Remember the word that I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all of these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. Now, this hatred... Could it be based in, like, a total opposition? Have you guys ever faced somebody that just does not like you? I'm a pretty likable person, I like to think. Um, but I've had a few. I've had a few encounters with people who don't like me just because they, they don't for whatever reason. They've come up with and they've said, hey, that guy, he, yeah, he's just weird. He's always got hair gel. He's always making some sort of remark about coffee. He likes books. He seems like he's very charismatic, but there's something about him that I just don't like, right? Maybe you've been identified as somebody that people don't like for a particular reason. Fill in the blank for your, yourself here. That's a reality on one end of hatred. But notice how Jesus talks about the hatred that exists here in the world. Why do the people of the world hate Jesus? Because they do not know him. They don't understand him. Think of the ways that people have responded to Jesus throughout John's gospel. Jesus has been what? He's been a miracle worker. He's been a healer. He's had some really incredible things to say. He's been a gifted teacher. He's, give, he's fed people. 
in ways that nobody else could with as little resources as possible. There are things to like about Jesus, but as people respond to him, they don't see him for who he is. They think, oh, well, here's the guy that gave me the fish and bread. He is my Wendy's. (laughs) Or maybe he's the one who helped this person who is lame now walk. Well, he, he's the miracle worker that heals people. But when they actually listen to the claims of Jesus, what do they say? He's a crazy man. Like John 8. He identifies himself with the I am, and what do the Jews want to do? They pick up stones to stone him. They don't understand him. So their hatred, though could, like for the sake of the Jews, be because of the things that he's saying, it's more often than not the world hates Jesus because they don't understand who he is. It continues on even to say in verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else had done, they would have not sinned. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. So it's not just that people don't like Jesus because of Jesus being Jesus. It's not just that people don't like Jesus because they don't understand him. It's also because Jesus does something that they don't appreciate. He exposes their sin. Notice in verse 22 and 23, if I had not come and spoken, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse. They may have been hiding under the reality that they thought everything was okay and they were just getting along with life, doing exactly what they were doing without any consequences. But when Jesus comes in and says, that's not according to the ways of God. Here's what the scripture says. Now, all of a sudden, they don't like it. Why? Because they've been exposed. And now, they're no longer guilty. Like, they they can't stand as ignorant. They have to stand as those that are guilty. They've been confronted with the reality of sin and its consequences. They're separated from God. How could anybody tell me that, right? How dare you? Somebody, uh, I feel like, asked me this recently. I can't remember who it was, so if this was you, sorry. <laughs> but somebody asked me, like, hey, how have, like, have you encountered anybody that's, um, like, been oppositional toward you because you're a young pastor? And I was like, oh, yeah, man. <laughs> that is so true, right? I can remember one of my first experiences uh, here in Hebron. Uh, there was a couple that wanted to get married, and this guy that was not a Christian I told him, like, hey, if you want me to marry you, you have to do at least premarital counseling sessions. I require that for every couple that I marry. And he goes, what do you have to tell me about being married? You're only 25, right? And I just, at that moment, was like, oh, man, this guy's like ex-Navy. He could totally whoop my butt right now, and I would be toast, right? And instead of, like, trying to address the reality that somebody was like just calling me out for being a young guy. I just said this. I said, hey, listen, I understand that I may not have the most experience when it comes to being a married person. I am a married person, and you're not right now, so we could talk about that after. But (laughs) what I can tell you is this, is that my premarital counseling isn't based on my experience. It's based on what the Bible has to say about being married. So though I may not have 25 years of wisdom to share with you about what it means to be a husband or to be a married couple that's seeking to glorify God, I can at least tell you what the Bible has to say about it. And I believe that the Bible's God's word and that it's so good that it gives us everything we need to have a successful and glorious marriage in God's sight. So if you're interested in that, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. His tone changed really quickly. (laughs) It changed from, like, I'm ready to blow this 25-year-old up to, oh, okay, I'll think about that. We never had a conversation. I didn't actually get to, like, do premarital counseling with him. But what I recognized right then and there was, like, okay, hey, let's not make this personal. (laughs) I'm not telling you that I have all the wisdom in the world. I don't. But the Bible has something to say. And I can point you to that. Now, Jesus, as he talks with these people, he's exposing their sinfulness, and he's doing so with what? Through his word. He's showing them this is what it means to follow God. This is what 
the word of God says, and it's exposing these people. And how are they responding? They're responding with rejection, saying, I don't want to hear what you have to say. I don't want to hear what the Bible has to say about this. I'd rather just stay in my comfortable state. Why did all of this happen? Verse 25. This happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. That's actually a quotation of Psalm 69 where David cries out to the Lord and says, my my oppressors have persecuted me, Lord. They've hated me for no reason. I have no wrong among them, yet they've hated me. That's because David, as the king, was taking on this role that God would have established in the Old Testament that his person who would come and rule and reign wouldn't be under the light of majesty. He would be under the light of that person who would rule and reign through suffering. What David was supposed to symbolize comes to its reality in the person of Jesus. So friends, yeah, there's, there's hard news this morning. Trouble is coming. And we're going to face persecution. So what do we do in light of this? First, Friends, I'm not going to say that every persecution doesn't have a personal connection, but I'm going to say more often than not, persecution is not for the sake of per se saying somebody dislikes you personally. They may have more issue with what you've said and how you've said it. So first and foremost, friends, don't be so serious to take everything personally. But in light of that, take it personally when people don't embrace the things of God. Take it personally in the sense of like have allegiance to the things of God. Feel that that you need to stand up for the truth of God and that that is your core truth and belief. If you say that this is what the Bible has to say and you want to live by it and somebody rejects that, though it may not be about you, you should at least feel some sort of weight that Here's what God has to say, and somebody doesn't want to appreciate that. They want to reject that. That should have some sort of response within you. It should make you upset when people oppose the things of God. So though it may not be super personal, you should have some sort of response within you about the rejection of the things of God. If you don't, we need to talk. We need to talk. We need to pray that the Lord would increasing you a care for the things that he has said. And as we think about persecution, friends, there is one sense in which Christians can be responding with saying, let's be friends with everybody. Uh, I think I mentioned not too long ago, there's been these different worldviews that have come within the last 50 to 70 years. Negative world, positive world, and neutral world positive world was where everybody at least saw the things of Christianity and they said that may be good for you and that may be good for society but I'm going to relate to it how I want to relate to it neutral world is whatever is good for you you determine okay and the negative world is the I the worldview perspective where what's best for me is what I say is best for me and if you don't like it everything else doesn't matter okay where do you think we live Positive, neutral, and negative world. We're in negative world, friends. We are in a negative world where everybody says, what's best for me is what I say is best for me, and if you don't like it, there's the door. Okay. Now, just know how people respond out of their worldview. Having that awareness helps us to see how we can respond. Now, does it mean that if everybody says that things are negative, that we should respond right back with negativity? No, that may not actually be successful. Now, does it mean that we embrace everything and say, oh, we're your friends, we're your allies, we want to be here with you, we, we love you, and we appreciate everything you have to say? No, because you'll get found out quick, right? Because some point or another, there's going to come the, the crossroads, there's going to come a collision on the train tracks, where you're going to have to stand up and say, I can't live with that, I can't stay under that reality, or you give in. You either... Reject it or embrace it. So positivity may not be the entire picture of what to take. And it may not be all that well thought of if we just stay neutral in everything. 
They just say, all right, let's let you decide. Let's figure this out. There are times where each lens is appropriate. And it takes great discernment and great prayer. And praise God that the passage doesn't end with the reality that we're going to face persecution. It tells us that we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. <laughs> we have the Holy Spirit. Look at verse chapter 16, verse 1. Or 20, let's look at 15, 26. When the counselor comes, the one who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because the things that you have been with me from the beginning. I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. I love that, you know, Jesus, he, he does something here, right? He's been sharing all this good news, and then he drops this bomb on him that there's going to be horrible news coming their way. But he tells them, hey, the counselor's coming. The Holy Spirit is coming. The Holy Spirit, the same spirit that was supposed to encourage them with the reality that Jesus wasn't going to be with them, is the spirit who's not going to let them feel abandoned, but feel that God is with them, that the spirit that's going to actually indwell those who believe in Jesus, who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus, now is the same spirit that is coming to encourage them in light of this persecution. When the Spirit comes, the one that I will send to you. Now, the Spirit is one who was given and promised in chapter 14. But now, here in chapter 15, notice the Spirit is sent. I'm sending the Spirit to you. The Spirit is going to come from where? He's proceeding from the Father. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. What is he going to do? He's going to testify about what? About Jesus. So what does the Holy Spirit do? According to John's Gospel, John 14 the Spirit guides us and comforts us and teaches us about Jesus. And then in John 15, as the Spirit is sent, what does he do? He comes and he testifies about the things of Jesus, about Jesus himself. And then in verse 27, he switches that and says, while the Spirit's testify, you also will testify with me. Well, why? Because you have been with me from the beginning. In light of this, Jesus wants the world to have an accurate understanding of who he is, what he has done, and what he has said. Okay? How does he communicate that truth? Through the Holy Spirit and the testimony of the Holy Spirit, but especially through the testimony of followers of Jesus, particularly these disciples. Who's going to tell the world that's around them who Jesus is and what he has done other than the, the best option, those 12 that were with him constantly? They've been with him from when? From the beginning. So does this mean the beginning is like the idea of John 1, 1? That the word became flesh and dwelt among us? Do they mean Jesus' birth here? No. They mean John 2, 1, where Jesus is at Cana and he turns the water into wine at the wedding festival. They have been with Jesus since the beginning of his public ministry. So all that he has done, all that he has said, which is now coming to this realization that has been proclaimed in chapter 13, I'm going away, I'm not going to be with you forever. Now, they're going to be the ones that are going to share the news. They're, Jesus isn't going to be with these disciples forever. But he is going to give them the Spirit to remind them, and he's going to use them to tell other people what he has done. So we have a call, guys. In light of the persecution of the world, what are we to do? Tell people about Jesus. Now, notice what this text doesn't say. Okay? It doesn't say run away. Did you notice that? Okay? Now, I, I want to just give you a, a brief synopsis of the last hundred years of church history here in, in America. Okay? Do you guys remember the, the 1920s and 30s? No, not everybody in the room, right? Because maybe, maybe you weren't around for that. Don't point at Gene and Joan. That's not nice, Caleb. <laughs> Gene, you want me to do something for you? Should I publicly rebuke and, and fight for you? I, I am right now. I've got your back, Gene. I, I know you're old, but you're not that old, right? 25. So, okay, okay, good. So, the 1920s and 30s, think about what was happening within America. The New York Stock Exchange had a giant crash in 1929, right? We went into the Great Depression. Everybody lost everything, not just in America, but in the world. 
it impacted the world, this, this great stock exchange, because everybody had put their treasure and their wealth in this one thing that they thought was going really well, and then when they couldn't actually live up to the realities of what they promised, boom, explosion, right? That may not be the most economically sound translation of that, but you get the picture, okay? I'm not an economist, I'm a pastor. That's a, there's a good reason behind that. Um, 1929, 1930, we see the beginnings of the Great Depression. Uh, there's houses and communities that are set up through poor, through trash, through rummaging. Everybody's lost everything that they have, and they're trying to live by what they've got. Then into the 1930s and 40s, we see the beginning of the, the World War, the Second World War. Right? So in the early 19-teens, right, 1918, we saw the First World War, and then we get to the Second World War. And the whole world at this point is going through from 1918 all the way to 1945. We're talking less than 30 years. They've gone through two world wars, an economic crisis, and there's been all sorts of responses to the world. Now, how did the church respond? in light of these things. At least in America, what we see in the rise of the 1920s and 30s is what is known as fundamentalism. Okay? Fundamentalism. Now, the response to these things is people are responding to the world crisis and their sin is multiplying sin. The fundamentalists who are trying to stand on the authority of God's word and say, like, hey, here's what God's word says, they don't engage the culture. What they actually do is they separate themselves from the culture. Right? So Randall Niebuhr, who wrote a really great book about this Christian culture, if you want to take a look at that. But fundamentalists, they respond by saying, we're not going to be part of the world. We're just going to leave that there, and we're, we're going to go live in light of God's word and his principles in the best way that we possibly can. 40s and 50s. Who's the great figure that rises in the 40s and 50s into the 60s in evangelicalism? Anybody know? Good old Billy boy, right? Billy Graham. Billy Graham rises up and starts preaching the gospel through first the invention of the radio. The, the gospel is made known in a great technological advance. And then we see the Billy Graham crusades where he's gathering together thousands of people preaching the word of God and people are responding now, the neo-evangelical movement, what Billy Graham was part of, was a response to worldview. It was, we're not going to respond like the fundamentalists and disengage from society, and we're not going to respond like theological liberals that are going to say that the Bible's got no accuracy or nothing to stand on. We're going to engage the culture with the reality of God's word. Right? So praise the Lord for the efforts of Billy Graham, Carl F.H. Henry, John Stott, J.I. Packer, those brothers who started to engage culture with the truth of God's word. Okay? Right, so we see two different responses there. Okay? That's what the world has looked like in the, in the last few, uh, few hundred years of history. We may be even seeing a third wave of responses now, where it's no longer just the idea of withdraw from culture or engage culture, but Randall Niebuhr puts it in a third light where he would say transform culture. So Christian worldview comes in and then becomes the precipice of how society is supposed to function. Um, now, I'm not going to tell you which one of those is most accurate. I think that there's room for a variety of responses, and I think those people responded in different ways. But nonetheless, we have to see, according to John 16, that when oppression comes, we have to have a response. Now, you may be tempted to withdraw or engage or engage and transform. Those may be your responses. Nonetheless, Christian, know this. You need to stand on what God has said. You have to have a response. There is no avoiding this. You've got to stand for something. We don't get by as passive participants in those that persecute those that believe in the gospel. There is no passivity in this. We're all going to be involved. And the question is, will we respond like the world or will we respond like the disciples of John 15? Will we reject the things of Jesus or will we stand up for the truth of Jesus? And friends, if we do stand up, it's not all going to be fluffy rainbows and unicorns frolicking through a field of flowers. Quite a picture, right? 
It's actually probably a kid's show. But notice what John records for us from Jesus in John 16. In verse 2, they will ban you from the synagogues. Now, that's already been news, right? John 8, after Jesus has healed the lame man into John 9, what w- the people, who, the parents of that lame man, they were, they were afraid of responding. Why? Because the Jews had said anybody who aligned themselves with Jesus would be s- kicked out of the synagogue in their community. So John 16, 2, they, they're going to ban you from the synagogues. In fact, there's a time coming when anyone will kill you thinking that they're doing service to God. Is there a figure in the Bible that is guilty of that? Saul, Paul, who would then become one of God's most influential figures in building the church. But why was he doing that? He was doing that in light of thinking that he was doing service to God. Verse 3, they will do these things to you. Why? Because they haven't known me or the Father. Do you notice this is the third time in these verses? Why are these people doing it? Rejection of God, a misunderstanding of his word. Again and again. Verse 4, but I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember that I told you them. Jesus wants us to be prepared. We, we need to know this is going to happen. And I know it's something that many of us don't want to face. I'm not, I don't want to face persecution, guys. I don't want that. I like the comfort of being able to get up and preach and be with you all Sunday to Sunday. But here's something that I'm coming to realize. There may be a time where something that I've said is streamed online. and They may not even be here in the room. They may hear something that I've said in a recording and go, We're going to go after him. What am I going to do? I'm not going to run away from it. I'm going to say, come and get it. That's going to be my response. Come and get it. If that means that I've got to go to jail, I'll do it. I don't like that reality, but I would rather stand for the things of God and say, hey, this is what God has said. Yeah, I said that. Here's the context of how I said it. I want to be gracious in my response to those people. I don't want to just tell them, like, hey, get lost. I want them to hear the truth of the gospel, to hear that Jesus loves sinners and he wants to rescue sinners. I want them to repent and believe in the gospel. And if that means that somebody dislikes me so much that I end up in jail for it, then by all means, get it ready. And I hope that you guys will support me through it. But it's not just going to be me that's facing that persecution. You may be aligned with Hebron Church of Hope and it may cost you in your job. It may cost you in your family relationships. It may cost you in how people look at you in the neighborhood. They go, oh, you're with those Bible-preaching freaks? Yes and amen. And we want you to be a Bible-preaching freak too, right? I mean, that's kind of part of our response. But we want to, we've, I want to, to be a pastor who em- engages with the culture with grace and truth not just grace and not just truth grace and truth and i'd love to see that multiplied in our church body that you guys as you face questions and opposition for the things of the lord you would not shy away from them but that you would go how do i respond to this with grace Guys, there are a number of areas in our life, in our sphere, that we can have an influence for the kingdom. And ultimately, God is the one who's sovereignly controlling these things. And ultimately, he's the only one that I think can actually transform the culture. I can't, certainly. But my part and your part is to at least testify to what we see in the scripture. Let's testify. How can we do this in light of this? Testify at work. Testify in your workplace. When you have conversations with people, tell them of the things of God. Tell them of what God is doing through the church. Man, I want to commend Heather. 
She's here this morning. She's on the board of ed here in town. Rachel and I were literally talking this week as I was walking through pastors. like, thank God Heather is in the board of ed. She represents Jesus in her life, not just there, in her workplace, in her family, in her neighborhood. She's a picture of a follower of Jesus. We need people like Heather. We need people who are going to be in things in town and say, hey, yeah, I'm a Christian. You may not like all of these things, but let's have a conversation. We need people who are working in the place for the sake of Christ, people who are representing Christ in different areas within our communities. And it's not just here in this building, Sunday to Sunday. It's Monday through Sunday, every week. We need to testify. So when the world says, here's what Jesus has to say, Who's going to stand up and say, hold on, let's open our Bibles. Will you open the Bible? Will you testify with me? Will you testify with each other? Will you proclaim the goodness of God to a world that may be opposed to you with grace and truth? I don't know everything of what that looks like. And I think there's a lot of nuance and I think there's a lot of room for discernment. And I don't think there's any one right way outside of standing on the word. Let's stand upon the promises of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for how you have been working and shaping us to live out the gospel in this context. Trouble is coming. We know it. This is the same word that you shared to the disciples. After they had feasted with you and had positive instruction on how they were to serve one another, care for one another, love one another. And God, you have placed them in a context where people would oppose them. God, while we work on serving one another, loving one another, and caring one another here at Hebrew Church of Hope, we realize that that means that there will be those that oppose us. And so in light of that opposition, would you give us strength? Would you give us strength to endure? Would you give us strength to stand? Strength to speak? God, would you give us an extra measure of grace? I know I can be sharp and I need more grace, Lord. I pray that you would give me more grace. That as you give me grace, that you would give me truth to proclaim in your word that you would give this body of believers grace and truth to proclaim. That they would do so without fear of man, but that they would do so standing on the promises of your word, trusting in you, their sovereign king and Lord. And God, what we are facing, though is real, doesn't begin to match with those that are being killed in the name of Jesus right now. We pray that you would help us to empathize with our brothers and sisters that are facing harsher persecution than we are. We thank you that we're not in those things, but we pray that they would stand upon the promises of your word and that they would testify to the work and person of Christ for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to ask uh, Ethan and Caleb, can you guys help me out with this? Um, we're going to break up into some small group prayer time. And I actually have these things. I've got 50 copies of this. This is praying for the persecuted church. These are the top 10 locations in the world that, actually, let me see one of them, um, that are facing persecution right now in 2023. Uh, so what I'd like to do is have you guys break up into groups. So groups of like four to six people, Okay. Let's go and just form that with the people that are around you. Go ahead right now, and then I'm going to sign you a country or a location to pray for. Okay? Ready, set, break. Mm. Uh, leave it on. That's fine. Over to you, bro. Yeah. 
being Dave. Okay. Dave. Taking the lead. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, friends. Here we go. Ready? I'm going to give each group a country or location to pray for. You'll notice on these sheets, okay, that there are prayer points for you. This is yours to take home and keep, okay? In light of that, we should be praying for two things in our group. Whatever country and prayer point I give for you. And the second is I want you guys to pray together about the opposition we will face as Hebrew Church of Hope for the sake of the gospel. So pray for strength and endurance and the opposition we may face, okay? And your particular location. Okay, so group over here, you guys, you're going to pray for North Korea. North Korea, okay? In the back there, you guys are going to pray for Somalia, okay? We, we got two groups right here, okay? Martins and, and crew, you guys are going to pray for Yemen, okay? Lasky's and the soon-to-be chances. All right, uh, you guys are going to pray for Eritrea, okay? All right, Harold, what's up, my man? Uh, you guys are going to pray for Libya, okay? Libya, all right. James and friends, you guys are going to pray for Nigeria, okay? Feel free to pray in Spanish, okay? That's good, all right. Um, Matt, you guys are going to pray for Pakistan, okay? Heather, Rita, you guys are going to pray for Iran. And then, friends up here, you guys are going to pray for Afghanistan. And then when we close, I will pray for Sudan. All right? Let's spend the next five minutes praying for these locations. Somebody pray for these locations as a prayer point, And then pray together for our church body as we face opposition for the gospel.